You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Welcome to season two of Another Name for Everything. Casual conversations with Richard Rohr responding to listener questions from his new book, The Universal Christ, and from season one of this podcast. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts. I'm Bree Stoner. And I'm Paul Swanson. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst late-night grocery runs, laundry overwhelm, and the shifting state of our world. This is the third of 12 weekly episodes. Today, we're addressing your questions on the themes of hell and the devil and afterlife. Richard, one of my favorite stories that you've shared with us is about... um, Teresa of Avila uh, being asked about hell. Do, oh, you, yeah. do you believe in hell? How does it go? Do you believe in hell? You know, uh, we got to be honest. We're not sure it's historical. Okay. But some insist it is. I, I, I've never read it, you know, footnoted. But the story is that uh, the sisters asked her, do you believe in hell? And she said, oh, yes, because she had to keep her orthodoxy with the Spanish Catholic Church. And then she's supposed to have whispered to the side, it's just that no one is there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can see what she's trying to do, which is probably what I would try to do too. But maybe for different motivation. I'm not afraid of the Roman church now. But uh, I can see why you have to posit the idea, maybe not a torturing place, but the Mm -hmm. idea of an eternal no has to be granted to human nature. Hmm. Now, what a lot of the saints also said was that once the human soul observed even for half a second, if observe is the right word, the infinite love of God, no one could resist it. Hmm. Uh, Now, is that moment of possible resistance what we meant by purgatory? I bet it is, you know. Hmm. But it seems like uh, we we got a lot, I mean, we got a lot of questions about hell and the devil. And so that's really the theme that we're going to be focusing on today. But it seems as though some of this has to do with that um, causality thing that we were talking about in the last episode. So like who deserves to be where for eternity seems to still be a primary concern for so many of us. Before we dive in with that first question, Richard, does that surprise you that we got so many questions about hell and Satan after knowing our conversation in season one and then yes. the themes of the universal Christ? What's your response to just... Well, let me say this. First of all, if you had that idea 
planted in you as a little girl in Sunday school or a little boy in catechism class like I was. Uh, remember, I say things that you learn early about eternity or divinity positive, place themselves in the, um, the lower brain stem, for want of a better word, especially when they're filled with fear. I mean, how would you not? Oh my God, this is the shape of the universe. There's a torturing God and I live inside of it. So even I find otherwise very well-educated people will still have some notion of hell, some fear of hell, and it's often the underlying reason, not always, but often, why they reject the whole Christian parable because um, it just creates an abhorrent universe for them. Mm. If the center is punitive, is making a list, checking it twice, is hateful, a lot of people just went off the boat. You know? Maybe they haven't processed it that way, but that's what has to... And I wouldn't doubt that that might be necessary for their sanity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, I think, for a lot of our um, listeners, the idea of the universal Christ seems incompatible with the idea of, of the punitive of hell. And so I think that's why we got so many yes. questions mm -hmm. as well. Yes. Yeah. Let, let me offer this, if it helps any at all. When I found that even Buddhism had a notion of hell and Hinduism had a notion of hell, it wasn't always configured exactly the same way. But I came to realize there's some problem they're trying to solve here. And it's basically that, it, I, this is my language, I think they're trying to say human freedom matters. We're not robots, we're not on cruise control, because if you declare any notion of universal salvation, or uh, God loves everybody in the end, and there's no consequences to human action, it does become a meaningless moral universe. And so to maintain morality, you have to say no is possible and death is possible. Once you hear that, I've over the years had many people just breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, I see the problem it's trying to solve. The trouble is, the iconography of, of fire and torture and eternity just, uh, you know, muddied the whole well of hell. <clears throat> it was just, this is an intolerable universe. But can you see where we were trying to say the same thing that a number of the Eastern religions were trying to say when they spoke of karma? What goes around comes around. And just our normal sense of morality, uh, we, we look at people who are loving and generous and self-sacrificing, and we look at other people who are totally selfish and malicious. This isn't hard to prove. It's everywhere. So they wanted to name it by creating a metaphor that was urgent and ultimate. Now became hell. A metaphor of urgency and ultimacy, but unfortunately now we know it appealed to the lowest level of the brainstem, 
which is fear. And a lot of people just stayed there with their theological PTSD, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just, oh. Uh. And they, they, rather than even try to process it, they just stay away from Christianity or any religion right. that appears to be saying this. It became the whole storyline instead of just yes. something to help the plot thicken. Well said. Very well said. That's exactly right. You know, every good novel has to have a, a dilemma, has to have a, a perpetrator, has to have a villain mm -hmm. uh, to uh, make the plot thicken, as you just said, mm -hmm. uh, to create the storyline itself. But we just took it too far. This is why I always say literalism is the least helpful level of understanding a scriptural or biblical text or a spiritual text. It doesn't help in the end because you, you struggle with the literalism instead of the message. Now, I don't know why God took that risk of knowing that people would would take a spiritual text literally. Mm. That, that leads well into our first question because, you know, when we read the Gospels and we encounter Jesus, there are references to, mm -hmm. you know, what we have interpreted as hell. Well, and so, we, well said. Yeah, Richard, uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, Gloucestershire, is that right? <laughs> Gloucestershire. Yeah. Is that how you say Gloucestershire? Gloucestershire. <laughs> I was there <laughs> once, I should have remembered. Right. Sorry, Richard. <laughs> you can't trust us Americans with these things. Um, <laughs> from the United Kingdom. He says, as well as being inclusive and welcoming, Jesus often seems to refer to the concept of separation. Sheeps and goats, Lazarus and the rich man, a sword rather than peace, and so on. Our images of heaven and hell come as much from these scriptures as from the likes of Dante. My question for Richard is to ask if he can please explain to us more about how he reconciles these depictions of separation attributed directly to Jesus with his vision of the universally loving God. Well, let me come at it from several angles. First of all, I've said in so many contexts you first have to succeed at dualistic thinking before non-dual has any transformative power. You see, and like you take Matthew 25, the story of the sheep and the goats. I know often I've been reading it in church. You can see everybody trying to take in the message, even though it's a little difficult because we're afraid we're one of the goats, of course. But then when it ends with this huge threat you can just see everybody lose heart. It's, it was supposed to be a, a challenging, inspiring text, but it ends up on a punitive line. And that's all everybody remembers. Now, forgive me, I know I'm psychologizing and unfairly, but I'm still going to risk it. Most of the passages that talk about eternal fire or eternal punishment in one phraseology or another are in Matthew's gospel. So I always say, I think Matthew had punitive parenting. <laughs> you know, if that's the way you were raised, and a lot of us were, with parents ending with a threat. If you don't do this, you're not gonna get any candy, okay? Uh, and so it became the way to tell a serious story. So I admit they're there, but I would point out they're mostly in Matthew, not all, however, 
Uh, and the other important piece is the words Gehenna, which is the dump outside of Jerusalem, still there to this day. Hades, Sheol, which were simply the place of the dead withholding judgment as to what happened to people. That was the most common ancient understanding, Sheol or, or uh, Hades, simply the place of the dead. It was sort of our Catholic notion of limbo. Mm. We don't know. We'll just leave them there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a waiting room. <laughs> waiting, waiting room is a very good word, yes. Um, a hopeful waiting room in a way, but sort of a dead waiting room too. So I wish we would have withheld judgment and understood that Gehenna was the garbage dump where the fire never went out. I remember looking through that spot in the wall of Jerusalem and it is still smoldering, at least 20 years ago when I was there. I don't know if it still is. And that is the final verse in Isaiah, the very where the fire never dies and the worm never leaves or something like that. <laughs> and we use those final, they use those final verses from Isaiah as a metaphor in contrast to the metaphor of Jerusalem itself. There was living in the city with the people, with the temple, with God, and there was being dumped through the wall. Which one do you want? So they set the people up for a good dualistic choice. Now, if you want to call people to choice and to decision, I think it's probably a rather effective way to do it. Uh, especially, I would say, for people in the first half of life, to use my language. Um, they aren't mature enough yet, subtle enough yet, to, to be appealed to, by love motivation. Huh? I mean, that's the case even with children. You, you bribe them with candy. And <laughs> so uh, childish minds tend to really, I don't want to insult anybody, but they tend to really buy into this reward-punishment worldview. The, everything gets framed inside of that. And the trouble with that is it creates what we now call a win-lose worldview. To, to, to the ultimate degree, there's winners and there's losers. It creates a competitive universe, so much so that win-win, which I'm convinced is the gospel, uh, is actually an abhorrent notion. We don't want everybody to win. And we won't allow God to let everybody to win. Who are we to say God can't love everybody? That's we who can't love everybody because we, we cannot form with our human minds the notion of infinity or eternity. And actually just Sunday, I checked that out again with a neuroscientist. And he said it's probably true that the human mind closes down, as we do with huge numbers, with the words infinity or eternity. Can't process it. Can't process it. So that was a double whammy. When we talk about eternal punishment, ah, 
I, I don't even know what to do with that. So the easiest thing is to run out of the room. Yeah. Really, I think we're responsible for a lot of atheism and agnosticism. I don't know how to process that. It's uh, an inane universe. If it's all ending this way, when, you know, I'm just here for a few years, how am I supposed to figure it all out mm -hmm. and make sense of it all? So uh, that's why I made that CD years ago, Hell No. Uh, at least for a while, it was the best-selling one. <laughs> and I, I think it was because people were looking for liberation from this terribly dead-ended universe. Because, and let me stop on this, if our moral theories were true and our salvation theories were true, the vast majority of humanity went to hell. Mm. <laughs> Who wants to live in that kind of universe, you know? Mm. And as Chesterton said, your religion is not the, the denomination you belong to, but the cosmos you live inside of. Well, if that's the cosmos where most people go to hell, and so I, I live my whole life so I'm not one of those most people, you end up living a life of comparison and competition and judgment, not love. Mm -hmm. Let me repeat that. You end up living a life of comparison, competition, judgment, exclusion, add a few more negatives. It doesn't teach you how to love. It really doesn't. And that undoes our whole storyline. Mm. So uh, I'm eager, I'm glad you're asking me about it because if we don't get this clarified for history, I, I'm not sure how the Christian message as it's portrayed here, as you've just asked me, it, it, it's never gonna make sense to much of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not gonna be good news for all the people, which is what the angels say at Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate how you are framing this around the importance of educating the power and impact of choice oh, and good. how much we as humanity need to have a sense of that. And one of the things I'm wondering about Thanks. is if, if really what was happening is we, we projected out into eternity what is just true for us now. Right on. So instead of thinking of hell later, it's here in accordance to our actions. It's, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about even the impact of choice on global warming, for instance. Yeah. You know, yeah. like we can't kind of, our brains kind of shut down when we think on the, the, the long term, the big picture, the, the cosmic impact that we're having, we can't really imagine it. So it's almost like we needed stories, we needed images, we needed something that could say, Excellent. hey, Excellent. this is serious. Yes. Our choices matter and our choices have impact eternally, mm -hmm. which I think is, it makes sense that we couldn't hold mm -hmm. the tension of the now and the eternal together, because mm -hmm. that's new for us, it's mm -hmm. hard for us as opposed yeah. to just kind of projecting it outward. Oh, well, if I live my life well now, I get a reward later. Later. Not yeah. if I live my life well with intention, I will be having an eternal impact. Well said. Yeah. Thank you. 
You know, I, I just watched a nature special last night on Glacier National Park. Did you see that in Montana? The, they were thinking in 20 or 30 years, the glaciers would be gone. It's now 10 years. There will be no more glaciers. Hmm. Now, you see, if, if you talk even that in educated society, in, uh, I mean, it really is urgent now. Yeah. Is that real? Is that, but you're considered hysterical or a zealot or... Uh, so you can see how human beings do need but resist shock language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't like it. An apocalyptic language, which the hell language is, is deliberately shock language. Yeah. Uh, to, to awaken the soul to the urgency of the message, but you said it so well, the urgency now, not, uh, okay, after the glaciers all melt, now it's gonna be urgent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, until the soul hears that and chooses to see differently, live differently, now it isn't going to make much difference if there's a reward or a punishment mm -hmm. later. With that, I'm, I'm thinking about just the neutering of agency in that when, when it is that mm -hmm. eternal kind of, um, if it's all going to happen for eternity, then, then like what does my, why do my actions, do they matter now? And you talked about it being a helpful metaphor for those in the first half of life, this kind of eternal consequence is a way to kind of help shape them in a way. Are you able to offer an alternative metaphor uh, instead wow. of hell that would be something that could uh, be a placeholder but have that same sort of mythic impact of, of, of agency and choice and that your actions mm. matter for right now, but yeah. also for the long term for uh, ancestors that have yet to be born. You know, the only honest word, and it's still a, a negative, maybe the ultimate negative, is the word death. Uh, that it, it must be possible for human beings to choose death or we're not free. So that still has a big impact. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, here's part of why we created hell. Well, we'd say the soul is eternal. Uh, but I think we have to participate in that eternality by saying yes to life. So I'm not going to let that override the possibility that human beings can choose death. Uh, and uh, that, that's perhaps the truth of Teresa of Avila saying, oh, I believe there's a hell. But she's saying it has to exist as a logical possibility. Mm -hmm or we are not free. I just don't think, that I think she's saying, that anybody would be so stupid once they see ultimate life, ultimate love, that they'd still choose death. But we, we don't know that yet, so we have to maintain the logical possibility. You can choose death now. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense to all of us, because we all know people are clearly choosing death day after day after day and imposing death on other people. Yeah. Yeah. Makes me think about how you were talking about the Trinity as uh, 
an image of re- all of reality, of the, the nature of reality, as being based in relationship and relationality. So if all of reality is a network of relationality, and we call that love, in a way it seems like what you're saying is when we choose death, we're choosing to undo, um, untie, disconnect from those you know, relationships. Yes, yes. And in essence, choosing a life of isolation and loneliness as opposed to a life of connectivity and joy and meaning and hope. At least for me, as I think about like, (laughs) speaking of hell, how in the hell do I talk about Mm -hmm. hell with my kids? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, who are hearing some of these concepts in, in, um, you know, some of their their, uh, Christian circles. And so for me, bringing it into the present and trying to frame it as, when we choose death, we choose a life of isolation. When we choose love, we choose a, a life of joy, meaning service and connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Just going to yeah, have yeah. one little short. Uh, you know, the French existentialist Sartre said, "Hell is other people." That's <laughs> what a person in hell would say. Uh, uh, There's that ultimate isolation. Hell is other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there have all been days where we've thought that, <laughs> yeah. I admit. But uh, if that becomes your philosophy, hell is other people, uh, that's the state of hell to think that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, and I think that, Brie, what you were saying, like, I, I so appreciate that Gehenna unpacking, Richard, because the, the image no. of Jerusalem, of the walled city, and being within the confines of safety connection and then the trash heap. Yeah. And that's, such a helpful metaphor it really versus it works. eternal yeah. punishment and punishment. And, and just that persistence that. in hatred for yeah. something. I mean, and you know what I'm going to say here. If, if the God that Jesus believed in taught forgiving 70 times 7 and loving your enemies, we suddenly have a, an incoherence in the heart of God, because God doesn't observe God's own message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That God does not love God's enemies, and God does not forgive 70 times 7. That, for me, is the clincher. It tells me it can't be true. It can't be true. And I'll take that over uh, taking some metaphors literally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our next question here comes from Deb from New York. She says, Hi, Richard. I heard you talk about heaven and hell. Can you explain Lucifer or Satan's reality in this world? How does that fit in? Okay. So we're going to build on what we just said. Uh, Lucifer, as you perhaps know, means the light bearer, uh, which is very telling. It was actually the day star, the first star you could see in the morning. goes back to an obscure passage in Isaiah where it says, the day star fell from the heavens. And that became the whole story of the fallen angels. But the, the truth it was trying to maintain is that evil first looks like light. It first looks like the answer. It first is attractive. As Thomas Aquinas said, No one intentionally chooses evil. They choose what they think is good. What they think. That's a good explanation of why we need to name something Lucifer. Satan or Satan 
means the accuser. Now again, these words are so archetypal, really. That negative voice inside of every one of us that first of all wants to negate us. You're not. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, trying to plant the doubt, always the planter of doubt, why Jesus probably calls Satan the father of lies, uh, telling you lies are true and truth are lies. So the names themselves are good. They're telling. They're archetypal. Now, how did we get to this personification of them Again, this literalization of them. Well, I'll go back to my own theological education. I think I was the one who raised my hand and said, and I was a 26-year-old cynic. Well, not really a cynic, but wanting to be. It was the late 60s. Uh, do we really have to believe in this, that there's a devil? And my systematics professor uh, closed his eyes for a minute and then says, well, let me just start with this, that no imagery would persist this long in almost all the religions of the world. I mean, go to temples in all of the East, you will have demons at the door, or evil spirits somehow personified if you would not have to take them seriously. It persisted that long, and we call that an archetype an image that just keeps reappearing, reappearing because the, the psyche needs it. And why does it need it? It doesn't take that concept seriously without personification. I think that's why we tell myths and stories and legends and now we watch movies. Mm -hmm. huh? We need personification to take concepts and abstractions seriously. So, okay, now I can stop fighting it. Uh, I'm not really believing nor teaching that there's a red-tailed devil with a pitchfork flying around the world. But I'm not saying that evil isn't real. I'm not saying you shouldn't take evil seriously. Now, let's add on to that. You know, maybe uh, Freud's idea of a complex uh, our psychological idea of an obsession, uh, where a bunch of ideas are operating together as one, and they have great power over us at the non-rational level, at the irrational level. You know, we know it's not true, like little kids thinking there's something under their bed or something. Uh, Freud would say there's a complex at work of fear of demons, of badness. We've got to take that badness seriously, uh, which is why your kids, I don't know if yours do, at any stage. To, yeah, my, my uh, daughter right now is having dreams of monsters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm glad I asked. Yeah. They, they're, they're needing to personify the agency of evil. It, it might be here. It is here. What if it's here? How do I protect myself? So uh, let's, those of us who think we're educated or progressive, not be too quick to throw it out. Because I think, as our present politics is revealing, you end up being very naive about evil. 
And we've got a whole country on left and right that's very naive about evil. <laughs> They're all pointing in the wrong direction. R really? Mm -hmm. Left and right. Uh, they can't see it. So Lucifer and Satan are very needed images, archetypes, metaphors, symbols, words for something we better learn to address. And I use the word address in particular. Give it voice uh, and, and recognize that it's non-rational. <laughs> Evil is non I mean, Nazi Germany, most people consider the Germans the most educated people in the world, still to this day. Education, 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 church, church, church. You were either Catholic or Lutheran, one or the other, and two world wars happen there. Was that not a message for humanity that you can be very intelligent and still not have the eyes to recognize evil? It's scary, I know. And why did I use the word scary? <laughs> This whole uh, notion of evil as something that possesses us, that overcomes us, that blinds us, it, it is meant to be scary. Mm -hmm. That could I be that blind person? Could I be blinded? And as Jesus says in John 3, because you say, I see, you remain in your blindness. Uh, so don't be so certain that you see love or you see truth. So it forces us on an inner journey that honors complexity, deviousness. Uh, that, uh, well, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. Is it chapter 11? I think the angels of darkness must disguise themselves as angels of light. That's straight from Paul. The angels of darkness must disguise themselves as angels of light. Now, you know, progressive people say, well, let's just dismiss angels. Well, he's making a better point than that. <laughs> a much better point than that. The whole nature of evil as that which disguises itself as good. And the other point I often make with the students is from C.S. Lewis, screw tape letters is worth reading someday. Uh, he says, something to this effect. If evil wants to enter England, it will not come with a red tail and a pitchfork. He will come wearing a three-piece suit and talking with the Queen's English. That's how evil will get into England. Mm -hmm. That's not an exact quote. Right. That's a paraphrase. But you get the point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of, I've been reading, I mentioned yesterday this theologian, Walter Fluker, and an example that he uses in the same way is he talks about white supremacy as a shape-shifting ghost. Mm. So then it, it'll appear as an angel of light to certain mm. folks in, in a certain way. Even the language of uh, a post-race race society allowed for oh. white supremacy to kind of rise up because it was not true, right? There's that long hidden wound of racism in America. Oh but then how it can pop up and look completely different at a different time. Wow. And that That's image excellent. of shape-shifting yeah. ghost has yes. really made me think about 
the demonic and devils and angels in disguise. Uh, yes, yes, yes. It also seems so necessary. I guess maybe this is the first time I'm actually recognizing that, that it's so necessary, like both how you represent the metaphor or personification of Lucifer and Satan. One as that which disguises itself as light, which looks good on the onset. And then the second, that which causes you to doubt. And both of those things kind of mm. go together. That's the fact, excellent. Yes, you know, the yes. fact that, that we're not sure what to trust mm. in each other, in ourselves, in systems, creates a sense of doubt. Um, and so, you know, almost like that need to question and to second guess uh, as, as an important piece to being a mature spiritual whole being mm -hmm. that isn't just gonna you know at face value yeah. think oh i'm i'm de i'm definitely mm -hmm. doing the right thing i know i am of course i am you know so it, it leads me to this question from uh ellen from dayton ohio because i feel like she's trying to get at you know it, essentially are we creating satan or is satan influencing us so back to that causal question but she says um in, in your book, you reference the demonic path and the accuser, Satan. I would like to know if Richard believes um, there is a satanic being, which we've been talking about, that are attacking us, trying to keep us from God, or is it just our innate nature of evil? Is Satan prowling around like a roaring lion, mm -hmm. seeking to destroy us? So I feel like her question is, are we creating Satan, or is Satan influencing us? I hope I'm not avoiding the real, very real dilemma she creates there. But I think it's both. Uh, in other words, probably a lot of our notions are projections of our own self-hatred, our own self-doubt. So you, you want to account for that, for sure. But don't do it so much that you you take away, this has a life of its own, mm -hmm. which is really a death of its own. I'm not just being clever. This is a death of its own apart from my projection. And that's why we use the word possessed. There is an outer force to evil that really has the power to possess us, to blind us. Uh, I see many cheering crowds in political rallies where just, I really want to say they are possessed. <laughs> they're possessed. They, I'm not saying they're going to hell. I'm just saying there's no freedom. That when this political leader says his funny line, they have to cheer. They have no choice because the person on left and right and behind and front are all cheering. Mm -hmm. That's possession by a demon, and that's a power outside you. So you want to recognize, yes, it's partially projection, but it's partially, when you feel a loss of freedom, I have to do this. I'm going to go so far as to say that's always an evil spirit. When you experience the Holy Spirit, there's an expansion of freedom, right? the freedom to or not to do. And the wonderful thing about the reign of God, the realm of God, is that God honors that freedom so much that God fully lets us sin. I'd sooner keep you in the realm of freedom 
and have you make mistakes now and then as long as you learn from them. That's all. That's all that required. God honors freedom. You've heard me quote Duns Scotus or the Franciscan school where the whole work of theology is to keep God free for people. And most theology does it makes God very obscure, very distant, very untouchable, very unlovable, and second part, to keep people free for God. Two freedoms. God, that's a good definition of what I think a minister, a, a spiritual leader should be. How do you keep God free? How do you keep us free? So that's how you can recognize the Holy Spirit and the evil spirit. You can feel yourself being constricted. I have to. And in that sense, this is the ultimate irony. Probably a lot of our early religious actions were not so motivated by the Holy Spirit. I have to go to church on Sunday. And if I don't, God will hate me. That was more an evil spirit. I know that sounds shocking to most people. Uh, but uh, or was it, maybe it was a baby evil spirit. But <laughs> it's kind of a cute one. Yeah. A In cute, training. A cute evil spirit. Nice but it's not Sunday the Holy dress. Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate by shoulds and oughts and musts or God, because they're always dualistic. Mm-hmm. If you don't, I don't think the soul moves forward that way. It moves forward by allurement, by attraction, by seduction, by being enamored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Even the, the gestures you just made that our listeners can't hear is you're ex, you're ex, you were extending your arms almost as if you were hugging. Oh, thank <laughs> you. You know, it's like it's a welcoming. It's the sense that this is a move toward, yes. toward yes. mercy, toward spaciousness, yes. toward moreness. Yes. yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for speaking my gestures. <laughs> <laughs> Gesture translator. And we're not going to share all the gestures. <laughs> Our next question comes from Todd in San Diego, and this furthers the conversation on Satan. Um, Richard, how do you think about the concept of Satan, given the weight you place on Rene Girard's concept of scape- scapegoating? How do those two connect? Boy, you're sequentially handing me these questions in very good order. I can see, perhaps, what Todd is thinking. That isn't most people's notion of Satan, a projection of their own evil onto some invisible being, the devil made me do it, kind of language, and an avoidance of their own choicefulness for evil or violence, you know. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I wouldn't want uh, people to think that I'm saying that Satan is only a projection. Uh, As long as you're not using Satan that way, the devil made me do it. The devil's evil, but I'm not. No, there's a part of me that wants to damn other people. There's a part of me that wants to exclude other people because that makes my ego feel superior. So I know you've heard me say the ego wants two things. Well, it wants three things. I've upped it to three. For years I said to be separate and to be superior, but it also wants to be in control. So those needs in you 
When you exonerate yourself by saying the devil made me do it, you never have to face your own inner life. Your control needs, your superiority needs, your separate needs. So I'm not sure exactly what question he's asking, but I hope I ever so slightly address them. Uh, I could see why he would wonder, after my emphasis on Rene Girard, why he still believes in a devil. I, I believe, I observe, the misuse of the devil because of Rene Girard's work. But build this on what we've already said here in the previous questions. Mm -hmm. I know it's getting subtle. Yeah, no, but it's helpful because I think to some degree the act of scapegoating is our denial of our own complicity, participation, or even propensity to behave Mm -hmm. in unloving ways. Yes. So it seems like... um, a little bit of a, a connecting point, at least in my mind, between Satan, the concept of an e- exterior evil and scapegoating, is that as long as I continue to say, oh no, they're the problem, That's right. that person's the problem, then I can continue to blindly participate in evil myself. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I, it, this is, it's a helpful question for me to wrestle with too. Okay, I hope so. Uh, and you know, you ended with a good phrase there, to wrestle with. I think all spiritual concepts deserve, in fact, demand wrestling. It's not going to be a simple little catechism answer. It's all settled. Mm -hmm. I'm happy that people are asking these complex questions. Mm -hmm. That shows they're in the middle of the wrestling match. If you're not willing to wrestle with it, I don't think it's very spiritual Mm -hmm. for you. There has to be ambiguity. There has to be... uh, duality to it and by that I mean good sides and bad sides mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I feel like um, Laura from Escondido California her her question is <laughs> is exactly what you're describing as wrestling she says my question is regarding the afterlife you taught that the church actually bases much of its thought more on Plato's mind-body dualism than on Jesus's teaching I was enjoying letting go of that and seeing my thinking transform until I thought about the afterlife. I then realized that I still cling to the comforting notion that my spirit lives separately and continues on after my body dies. The old Protestant, save the soul and don't worry about the body. But if that is overly dualistic, how do you think about what happens to the soul after the death of the body? Does any aspect of me live on? And she says, thanks so much, Laura, an evolving evangelical. (laughs) (laughs) She asks it well. Well, uh, here's where, you know, the early creeds of the church help us. They say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. That just as Jesus' body resurrected, and that doesn't mean resuscitation, it means returning in a different form, as Mark's gospel says. So we actually do, for all eternity, put body and soul together again. But that wasn't made clear to most Christians. Uh, So we want to know where mama's body is right now. It appears to have died, and we placed it in the grave. So what uh, I think 
certainly most Christians did, is withheld judgment on where the body is right now. <laughs> but we didn't say it's gone. Uh, but uh, I think that's why they put the phrase in the creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body, that somehow our physicality is in on this deal. But it's not, as we know from the resurrection of Jesus, the same physicality. He isn't recognized. He passes through doors. He bilocates. He looks like the gardener. He looks like the stranger on the road, the cook on the shore. So uh, maybe this is what Buddhists meant by the subtle body. It always intrigued me why they use the word subtle. There's a, maybe this word comes even closer now from science, force fields. Is there a force field that has the character of materiality to it, physicality to it, that is Paul, that is Brie, that is Richard? Um, that's the best I can do. You can see Paul struggling with this in the whole of 1 Corinthians 15. He just comes at it from every side. Not all of them clarifying. It's, sometimes it's more confusing and it's more confusing. But he says them all with great certitude. It will be a body, but it'll be a different kind of body. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think where we all get confused is this notion of time and body, matter and energy. Now, Einstein is trying to help us with that. I'm not sure most of us are smart enough to know, but maybe time is an illusion. I don't know how to go there. My mind doesn't know how to go there. But I hope just that little reflection uh, shows again, I hate to sound so Christian, but where Jesus was right. You know, I'm, I'm not a Platonist saying body dies and spirit is eternal. I'm saying the body expressed my spirit, mm -hmm. and God loves that embodiment and will honor that embodiment in some shape, in some form that we don't need to worry about. Right. Mm. Yeah. It reminds me too of the kingdom of God is here, but mm. also not here. Not yes, yet fully yeah, here. That's it's, very good. It's that subtle body of um, very good in, in Jesus' language. Yeah. Yeah, I think um I think for so many of us as well, there's an experience of those who have passed on, loved ones that have passed yes, on. Yes, go ahead with of, that. Of sensing their, I don't know how else to describe it, but their, their essence or their energetic signature in a way that is very particularly them. Yes. That makes you feel a sense of, you know, I don't know what's on the other side, but I, c I can tell you I have sensed my grandfather or other teachers who have gone before that I can every now and again, it's like they show up or I can feel them in the room or there's that sense of connection. And I'm sure many of our listeners have had those moments too. Yeah, it's almost everybody. Yeah, so there must be something. There must be something of us that uniquely lives on. Um, who can say? Yeah. Yeah, and that brings us to potentially one of our favorite questions. Yeah, we were just so delighted what? by this one. I can't wait. Yeah. <clears throat> so this comes from Adam from the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a, a, a setup and then an unpacking and then a couple of questions here, Richard. So I'm going to read okay. through this. Go ahead. 
I have been reflecting on your comment that there are 10 banquet metaphors and one courtroom scene. The sheep and the goats does end on a very threatening note, but I have noticed for a long while that the ending doesn't fit the internal logic of the parable. While it presupposes the great chasm of Luke 16, 26, the kingdom criteria that Jesus' words outline are all about the crossing of boundaries to shrink the distance between rich and poor, clothed and naked, free and imprisoned. Ah, uh, I love that. Shrink the distance. Mm-hmm. Shrink the distance. That's very good. Mm-hmm. And then why would he then expand the distance right after right. doing that? Right. Hey, go ahead. That's wonderful. Yeah. And then Adam continues with, the parable ends with, the eternal not emphasized, but Jesus' words require that those in paradise would immediately seek to mingle with the condemned. They would do so instinctively and intuitively. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been selected for paradise. It makes sense oh, to me. That's good. <laughs> that's good. Oh. It makes sense. It makes such sense to me that such a cycle of healing, of crossing and recrossing boundaries, requires eternity to operate, and never resolving itself in a neat dualistic way, but uncovering new layers of truth and divine mercy. In my imagination, at least, it would be a perichoresis of mercy, which wow. is never exhausted. Wow. With truth and mercy, with truth and mercy, yes and no, acting almost like magnetic poles within God. Please, could you say something about how you see this? <laughs> I can't say it nearly as good as Adam just said it. You know, if we can understand restorative justice with our little human minds, how could this not be the nature of infinite love? Mm. How could God be satisfied with a dead end mm-hmm. to what he created? But what cre- allows you to be in paradise, so-called, is the willingness to leave paradise. I'm again being too literal, but people get the point. To visit those imprisoned, which is what the New Testament says Jesus did, the harrowing of hell. Huh? To visit the imprisoned. That is just wonderful. That, You've given me a lot to meditate on. That phrase of it, that eternity, or that crossing and recrossing boundaries mm-hmm. would require an eternity to, to fulfill that itself. Too. I mean, oh, oh man, that yeah. is so good. Wow. You've given us a gift, Adam, and I hope by repeating it here and, and swallowing it with great delight, we're handing it on to some other people too. Yeah. Um, uh, he has a second question here that I wonder if you might want to comment on too, Richard, where he says, where might, where might we find echoes of the process and practices such as soul friendship, meditation, or confession? That practice of recrossing and crossing the boundaries. Where do you find echoes of that process and those practices? Every act of forgiveness, which is uh, no friendship persists, or is rightly called friendship, if it hasn't gone through several forgivenesses. That's how you know their love is unconditional. So uh, it, it's a crossing of a boundary, so much so, in, so much as if it's saying, forgive me, that the boundary now doesn't matter. We've crossed it together and let go of what was a largely a self-created hurt, or even if it wasn't self-created, I'm not going to let it destroy me or bother me or ruin our relationship. 
That is excellent. Meditation. And, as, ahead, well, I was just going to say, for me, um, there's something in the, the quiet process of observing myself and my own tendency and my own thoughts that is an experience of forgiveness in and of itself mm. within because I fight it and then I fight myself doing it and then I have this perfectionistic notion of, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be letting go of thoughts. God, I really suck at this, mm. you know? <laughs> But then also there's something yes. that is being developed in me through meditation, which is a softening toward myself, a forgiveness of my own humanity, an observation right. of my own implicit uh, actions and tendencies that then allows me to cross the boundaries with the other yeah. with greater ease or at least with greater sense of recognition. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I do that too. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I love that you had to confession in here too i mean as yeah. a protestant it's not something i that i practice with a pastor but just amongst friends or, or my yes, partner it doesn't have to be it, it can be such a healing recrossing into the relationship right where like a wound has been created and the distance that can that can happen when it's not acknowledged and in those moments of confession of acknowledgement and honoring the vulnerability and the broken trust and that chance to recross back into the, the the relationship between the two. I mean, those are some of the holiest moments of my life. And I think Adam gave me language in a way yes, that he sure did. I didn't have before. I don't think I'll forget it. It gives me a new notion of eternity mm -hmm. as this infinite space that God is going to give us to allow us to absorb what we have done to one another how we can let one another out of our prisons, how we can redo it. This is eternal life. That's rich. Wow, that's very rich. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Richard. You're welcome. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.